I was saying it's, it's a little disconcerting when somebody introduces a song written in 1979 as really old. Um, but we'll let that go. Um, Good morning and uh, welcome. For those of you who do not read the Press Herald, buy a copy, buy the paper version today. There's a two and a half page story on uh, Maxwell's Farm, on Bill and Lois, and uh, the relationship that they built with um, these work, three generations of workers from Puerto Rico. Uh, and it's just very, very cool. So I encourage you, I mean, you could read it online, but um, that'll work too. But anyway, I, I definitely encourage you to read it. It's very encouraging and uplifting this morning. Well, um, let's, let's just pray one more time. I appreciate Dan's prayer. I just want to add to it, Lord, and say thank you for this book. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for giving us uh, a revelation of who you are in written word. Thank you for all these stories. Thank you for how the Old Testament builds to the new. We ask you by your Holy Spirit to help us to understand um, what it is you have for us today and all these crazy stories that we read about taking place in Egypt thousands of years ago. Lord, help us. Help us to make sense of how that has anything to do with our lives today. Count on you, Holy Spirit, to do that in us and for us. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Um, in my lifetime, I have seen very few. I, I have a hard time remembering any, but uh, straight up horror films. I have friends who are totally into them, think they're just a laugh riot. Um, I, I just, you know, anyway. But I have seen a few what are called uh, natural horror thriller movies. Movies like Jaws. Where something that's normal in the in the world uh, runs amok and is, is problematic. One such movie uh, was released in 1963. It is by Alfred Hitchcock. It's called The Birds. Anybody ever seen that movie? So a few of you. Um, I was 10 when it came out. This was before 1979. Uh, <laughs> it's really intense. Um, it's about a town that's attacked. By birds, different kinds of birds too, many different kinds of birds. People are injured, people die. It's it's pretty intense and pretty freaky. Um, and for the people in the movie, it's terrifying. I mean, just imagine if you're just living in Portland and all of a sudden you could die from birds attacking you and all that kind of stuff. But for the moviegoers, it was a thrill. I mean, there's a few people who left there, I'm sure, freaked out about birds. Just I got I still have Linda and I have friends who have a hard time going to the ocean ever since they saw Jaws like several decades ago. Uh, it just kind of made it. But for most people, um, they left just pleased that they got to see a really great movie about a really strange story because we love strange stories. We just really like, uh, we like weird stories. We know they're not real and so we discount them accordingly. We just enjoy them but we don't think about it. None of us, most of us are not the story in Exodus, <clears throat> it's, it's important for us not to relegate it to one of those weird stories. They're not just there for our entertainment. They're there for our instruction. They're, they're, they're
they're about real historic events, but they're actually there to tell us something more important than the specific story we're reading. It's a picture of an even more dire story with eternal consequences. You've got a story that's going on in place, time, it starts, it ends. There's a bigger story that it tells us about. Um, all of us are in, human beings are in a bondage that is far worse than what Egypt did to Israel. Israel was truly in bondage, they were really slaves, and they had a miserable life. But human beings, the human condition in relationship to sin is far worse. And until the Passover, which we're going to read about later in Exodus, until the Passover is fulfilled at the cross and its work is applied to us by faith, uh, we remain in that bondage. And God gave these stories for our help to illustrate a spiritual reality that we need to pay attention to. So what does that mean? What does it mean that these stories do that? In, in 2 Timothy, Paul wrote to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, he was referring to the Old Testament. The New Testament did not exist when Paul wrote those words to Timothy. But how? How is the Old Testament useful to us? Is it, is it just a morality tale? We can read the story of what's going on in Egypt and think this is how to be good, this is how to not to be bad. No, it, it's really way more than that. And this may be a simplistic way of looking at it, but it's a simple way of looking at it. To look at the Old Testament and to see the Old Testament as a book full of pictures where the New Testament reveals the reality of all that stuff that happened in the Old Testament. I don't say that to denigrate the Old Testament in any way, but it helps us to understand and, you know, understand how the Old Testament and the New Testament are so different in some really key ways. Because there are people, probably people in this room, who have honest struggles trying to figure out how do you square the quote-unquote God of the New Testament with the God of the Old Testament when you have all this God-ordained violence and uh, death in the Old Testament. How do you square those two? Because there isn't a God of the New Testament and another God of the Old Testament. He didn't change. He's one God. So helping, it, it can be helpful to us to look at the Old Testament as God trying to tell us a story through pictures about what he will accomplish in reality. Here's a little illustration. Uh, there's a man named Stephen Kong. I, I would doubt if many of you have heard him. Um, he is still, he's 107, and he's still preaching the gospel. Um, anyway, he, he writes this. Little children learn to read, and especially to speak to a certain degree, from picture books. Every one of us who have kids, you've sat with them with a picture book. You showed them a picture of a cow. You said cow. And then later, you'd show them the picture, and you'd show them the word cow. And they sort of figured it out. Now, the word cow doesn't uh, mean anything to a young child. The written word, cow, is just an abstract concept. We don't think about it now because we just read all the time. But there's nothing, you know, this is an arbitrary thing that got developed over years. And it's, it's, a, uh, it's, it's a bunch of scratches on a page that describe a thing. And, um, and so when we learn a language, and our kids learn languages, 
we begin with pictures and we associate a picture or maybe a real cow with this word. Well, those picture books are really helpful to kids, as you know, that's why we do it. Um, and in fact, the pictures enrich the understanding of the word. They fill it out. They make it so that when we read cow, we can all of a sudden in our mind picture a cow. Well, I personally find that a useful way to understand what's going on in the Old Testament because it gives us a picture of the reality to come and makes our understanding of the New Testament revelation of Christ so much richer. The writer of Hebrews is getting at this when he writes in chapter 10, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And Paul addresses this in Colossians. He says, therefore, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come, but the reality is found in Christ. A good example of this, to my mind, is, is it plays out in Ephesians 6. In, in Ephesians 6, we learn that our enemy is not flesh and blood, but the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We square that idea. As Christians, we think that's right. Our enemy is not humans. It's something going on in the cosmic realm and spiritual, the spiritual realm. We square that with the Old Testament examples of God-ordained violence when we understand that the Old Testament is an earthly illustration of something going on in the spiritual realm. The Old Testament can help us understand how completely God is opposed to those forces and how completely opposed those forces are to God. It further illustrates how deeply he loves us, his persevering love for us as his creation. And it, and it, it also illustrates how deeply we are in bondage to sin and death and how much we need God to save us. If we look at these stories in, in, in Egypt, we see a people that needs a saving God. And it illustrates his power over the enemy. Well, when we read the story of Pharaoh, we can read it from the perspective that God is actually after everyone. And he is. That his ultimate game, aim is to save everybody in Egypt as well. Um, he wants everyone to come to a saving knowledge of who he is. But the more salient perspective as we read these stories is that Pharaoh is a placeholder for the enemy of God. Even if you will just have a stand-in for Satan, he is the, he's, he's actually a god. Pharaoh is the god of all gods, or to borrow an illusion, the, the, the one ring that rules them all. He's the one god that rules all the other gods in Egypt, and he stands in as, as God's enemy. Satan, the deceiver, is the ultimate enemy of God, who hates God passionately, hates us, hates everything that God's doing, everything that matters to him, all of his purposes, and God will later triumph over Satan when the sinless Christ Jesus goes to the cross and defeats him in the ultimate act of warfare that's recorded in the, new, in, the, in the Bible. But in the Old Testament, we see this picture version of what is to come and help us understand our plight, our, 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 our slavery, and the greatness of God. So Pharaoh and all the other gods of Egypt are in opposition to what God is trying to accomplish. And God refers to Israel, we read this earlier in a previous week, 
as his firstborn son. And Pharaoh has enslaved his firstborn son, Israel. And he wants to set his people free from bondage so that they might serve him. As long as Israel or we are in bondage, we cannot serve God as he intends. And he will do whatever it takes to deliver us from, from bondage to our enemy and to set us free. Now, and we can, if we can grasp this, we can get a hold of this idea of how extreme our slavery to sin is apart from the saving blood of Jesus Christ um, and how necessary the death of God, the death of the Lord Jesus in order to break those bonds of slavery, uh, to set us free, to serve the living God, it will help us understand why we're reading this. Earlier this week on Realm, I asked everybody if you had time to read Genesis 15 through 17 just to get a general idea of this sort of what drives the story of Exodus. Those chapters in Genesis are about God's promise sealed by a covenant with Abraham. If you read on beyond that, you would also see that repeated when he speaks to Jacob, uh, Abraham's grandson. By the way, I imagine a lot of people know this. Jacob and Israel are the same human being. Jacob gets a new name, Israel, later on in the story. So you hear those terms. They're the same guy. Israel, of course, becomes a nation. Anyway, his calling, God's calling and his promise and covenant are the very foundation of the story of Israel, and they're crucial to us understanding why he's doing what he's doing in Egypt. And they themselves are built on what God did in Genesis 2, which is he put a garden, he created a man, he planted a garden, he put the man in there, then he pulled the woman out of the man, and they're living in the garden. And who else is living in that garden with Adam and Eve? God. He's walking around with them. And the big story that happens in the, the rebellion, in the fall, is that the, the man and the woman are thrown out of the garden and the fellowship, this daily fellowship with God has ended. But it never ends the desire in God to restore that fellowship. He, his name has always been Emmanuel, which means God's with us and God is with us. And that is what drives him. He wants to be with his people. We find out later in Jeremiah, and we find out later in the New Testament that he wants to be in his people. Well, the rebellion put all that on hold. In Genesis 3, though, right away we learn that God will reverse this tragic disaster, and he'll do it through a man. He will save. So ever since the garden, he's had that burning desire to... Uh, be Emmanuel, and so he starts doing random acts of Yeshua, which means God saves. When Jesus shows up, what are the two names that he's that the angel tells Joseph that he's going to have? We just read it when we went through Matthew, and I just repeated him. You will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And this was said to fulfill the prophecy that his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. This is, this is what Jesus is doing. He's coming to bring to fruition what has been on God's heart forever. So I, my premise this morning is that to understand the craziness, this the anachronistic sci-fi movie weirdness, frankly, of the Exodus story, uh, it's helpful to understand uh, that 
it, it's a result of God being motivated to live among and with his people and to do an amazing thing to save us so that that can happen. And it's not just a morality tale. It's a big, giant picture of what he will ultimately do when the Lord Jesus comes to the earth. So the Exodus story is, is the next big chapter in his big rescue story aimed at restoring what he wants. Well, in today's passage, we are reading about the third, the second and third signs or plagues uh, Joel mentioned previously. Uh, and actually, it says right in the text, they're the signs and wonders. So plagues, signs, and wonders, they're both, they're both correct. Um, but they're, they're there. They're intended to be signposts. And the ones that we're going to look at today are frogs and biting insects. So let's read together. If you want to read along, I'm... We're in chapter, with the last verse of chapter 7 and the first 19 verses of 8. Um, I am in the Christian Standard Bible. Yep, you can read along in any version you like. <clears throat> Seven days of stench passed after the Lord struck the Nile. That was last week's story. It didn't just turn into blood, it smelled then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and tell him, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let them go, then I will plague all your territory with frogs. And the Nile will swarm with frogs. And they will come up into your palace, that's to the Pharaoh, your bedroom and your bed. And into the houses of your officials and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs will come up on you, your people and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, the canals, and ponds, and cause the frogs to come up <clears throat> onto the land of Egypt. Aaron did this. Verse 7. But the magicians did the same thing by their occult practices and brought more frogs into the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses. It's a big deal. Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Appeal to the Lord to remove the frogs from me and my people, and then I will let the people go, and they can sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, basically, when do you want me to do this? Verse 10, tomorrow, Pharaoh answered. <clears throat> Moses replied, as you have said, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God, the frogs will go away. They will only remain in the night. Verse 12, after Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord for help concerning the frogs that he had brought against Pharaoh. And the Lord did, as Moses had said, the frogs all died. And they piled them in countless heaps, and there was a terrible odor in the whole land. But when Pharaoh saw there was a relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had predicted. Then the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the land, and it will become gnats throughout the land of Egypt. And they did this. Aaron stretched out his hand. He struck the dust. The gnats were all over the people and the animals. All the dust of the land became gnats throughout the land of Egypt. The magicians tried to reproduce gnats. They tried to produce gnats using their occult practices, and they could not. And the gnats remained on the people and animals. The magicians, having failed, said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was 
was hard and ruthless for them, as the Lord had predicted. Oh Lord, help us. Help us to help us to find something that moves us in the direction of you and service to you. Amen. Well, let's look at a couple things in this passage. The Lord's message to Moses is consistent. Go to Pharaoh. Tell him this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may serve me, worship me. And if you refuse to let them go, bad things are going to happen. As Joel pointed out last week, these bad things are often referred to as the ten plagues, or they're called signs and wonders in chapter 7, verse 3. They're intended to be signposts, as I mentioned earlier, to Pharaoh, Egypt, and Israel that point to the living God, who he is, his power, his mercy, his purposes. And as Joel also pointed out, each of these signs is designed to show God's greatness, specifically that he is greater than all the gods of Egypt. In fact, they're designed to humiliate and expose and defeat the gods of Egypt. And every single one of the signs humiliates a specific god of Egypt. The signs aren't random. There's an order to them. Most importantly, there's a gradualism. If you read through all ten of them, they get worse. Each one is harsher than the last. And with each sign, Pharaoh has an opportunity to repent every time to humble himself. God actually shows tremendous patience with Pharaoh by doing this gradual buildup and giving him that opportunity every time. Well, the first nine plagues come in three groups of three. And the first group of three is initiated by God through Moses, through Aaron. Aaron does the thing with the staff. And the first three, including the two we just read, afflict Israel along with Egypt. Everybody gets afflicted. God... Um, works that way through them. But in the second and third groups, which will start next week, God works directly through Moses and he begins to differentiate. This is the last plague that affects Israel. The rest of them, they get carved out. As the things get worse, it only slams Egypt. Well, the sign of the plague of frogs, uh, which is our first sign today, uh, these frogs fill everything. I mean, that you... They're in Pharaoh's bed. He goes to get in bed, hooks up the sheet, you know, he gets in, he's got all these creepy crawly things going on. Not good. I, this was not in my notes, but it does remind me of the time that I was camping in my backyard when my sister and her, uh, with, with one of my friends, and one, my younger sister and one of her friends filled our, our, our sleeping bags with snails uh, conveniently. It was, it was a very interesting experience to climb in and uh, feel that. But uh, it, was, it was terrible. Um, the passage notes that the magicians were able to do this. Now, think about this. If you're Pharaoh, or you're just an Egyptian on the street, the last thing you need is more frogs. And so what the Egyptian magicians do is they create more frogs. They, what they couldn't do was get rid of the frogs that God made. So God had um, given them, you know, some 
limited power to mimic him allowed them to have that power, I should say, but not to reverse him or overrule him. They were powerless to do that. And the frogs were, the frogs, so the frogs were just awful. And I, um, this is a situation that I think if Jordan were giving this message, he would, he would describe it as a frog and nightmare. Um, can I get an amen? <laughs> well, Joel mentioned last week that there's this connection between the Nile and, uh, and the god, the, the, the Egyptian god of the Nile. Uh, turning the Nile into blood was more than just a hassle. It was an affront to an Egyptian god, as we talked about earlier. It was true of the frogs, too. Frogs were related to the Egyptian god Hecate, which, who was the goddess of fertility, water, and renewal. And Hecate, the drawings of Hecate, had the head of a frog. Egyptians revered frogs, and they avoided killing them for that reason. Moses and Aaron, through them, they were caused to leave the rivers and canals, fill the land of Egypt, and it was a mess. This humiliated frog god. Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and asked them to plead with God to get rid of the frogs. Well, this is the first time that Pharaoh even acknowledged that God existed. And he even acknowledged in his own way the need for prayer, even though he wasn't humble enough to pray himself. He asked Moses and Aaron to pray for him. He's beginning to learn under duress who God is and his heart remains hard anyway. So in order that Pharaoh might know that there's no one like the Lord, Moses cried out and the frogs died. Now they're gathered in stinking heaps. I don't know Hebrew, but the commentators that are read indicated that the Hebrew says something like, they heaped them up heaps, heaps. There's just like lots of dead frogs in big heaps, and they stink. It's an in-your-face moment for the Egyptian priests, Pharaoh, and the people. Not only was the frog guys of fertility and renewal showed to be a farce, the dead frogs made the whole land stink. It shamed Egypt, but it should cause us to rejoice, not at their loss, but to rejoice at God's power. He is powerful, and he is for us. He is the God who is determined to get freedom for his people. Once it was over, Pharaoh hardened his heart as predicted. So the Lord had Aaron stretch out his staff and strike the dust, and the dust became gnats. Now the Hebrew word there is really unclear, apparently. It could be lice or mosquitoes. It could be a number of things, but the general sense is that it's a biting or stinging insect. At this point, I won't surprise you to learn that the dirt or the soil was a deity in Egypt because that's that's their world. It was represented by Jeb or Geb, the god of the earth who was worshipped in Egypt. Their life-giving dirt had been transformed into a plague of biting or stinging insects. Now, my best way to sort of imagine what this is like is being covered with some sweet-smelling perfume and dropped into the main woods at dusk. A lot of you are probably fortunate, like Linda, and you could be around five million mosquitoes and they don't bite you. I'm at the other end of the spectrum. But anyway, these people are just being gnawed at by these little critters. Well, and as I said, it brought suffering to everybody, including the Hebrews. 
There's another thing about this sign. It was a creation. It was a creation miracle sign. This was transforming one thing into something else. Dust was turned into gnats. The other thing was like, you know, frogs. They just bring a lot of frogs up. But this is actually taking one thing and turning it into something else, which might tell us something about why the Egyptian magicians could not do it. They could not reproduce it. Um, and they announced it as the finger of God. This is bigger than what we can do. That is the last we hear of the magicians in the plague stories. Bye-bye magicians. They're, they're out of the picture. It's one more step in the Lord educating Egypt and Israel as to who he is and what kind of power he has to achieve, to, to get what he wants. And none of it mattered to Pharaoh. He hardened his heart that he wouldn't listen to them just as the Lord predicted. Well, what, what's the message here for us? How does this, again, going back to trying to tie these crazy stories, get them out of movie land, you know, get them out of crazy movies like The Birds or Jaws or whatever and bring them into, what does it have to do with telling us about what's real today for us? The, in simplest terms, this message tells us that God loves us. He loves you. He loves his people. And not just a squishy love, like he just feels warm and fuzzy about us. He is determined that we will be set free from the bondage of sin to serve him. He wants his people to be liberated. What else does it tell us? It tells us that Satan and the world and even our own self-interested proclivities are in opposition to what God is after. We're going to read more stories about how Israel ends up continuing to respond to all the stuff that's going on. They weren't digging this because the first three plagues hit them. You know, we're like, thanks, thanks. Could we get a different kind of savior than you <laughs> to Moses? You know, so we're like, this is not helping. There's a lot of things that oppose God. Satan, primarily. God will persevere in his pursuit of the one he loves. And to accomplish that, he will defeat his enemies even with violence. And he will discipline his sons and daughters the ones he loves. And our part, my part, your part, is to set apart, set aside, set aside our myopic self-interest. Again, we'll see this play out over and over again with Israel, and it plays out in our own hearts, to choose between being with him or with the world. Where do I want to place my bet? You know, where do I want to, which place do I want to put my chips? With God or with the world? Where's that? How's that going to work out for me? Aligned with his purposes or opposed to them? Because that's where people land. That's where sentient beings land. We're for what he's doing or we're against what he's doing. This is not really a middle ground. And I know we want to be for him and he wants us to be for him. But it's a struggle. Even the most devoted and consecrated among us are a mixed bag. I certainly and I praise God for his fresh mercies every day. Praising the Lord every day for the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from sin as we come humbly to him and confess and make ourselves available to him is pleasing to the Lord. It's pleasing to the Lord. So I'm, my, my exhortation this morning, if I have one at all, is to continue to pray earnestly and daily 
multiple times as the Spirit leads, leads us. Father, let your will, not mine, not ours, but your will be done. Let your kingdom, not my kingdom. I want a kingdom. I'm always gravitating back towards building my own little kingdom. No, Lord, let your kingdom, and not our kingdom, and not my kingdom, flourish on the earth. Lord, you're the only source of everything that's needful. Bread for my body, my soul, and my spirit. Make that available today, Lord. Forgive us our sins. Let the blood of Jesus continue to wash us as we forgive those who sin against us. Don't lead us into temptation or trial, but keep on delivering us, Lord, from the bondage of sin that we might serve you. It's a free people who can worship and serve the Lord in gladness so that we can have lives that are marked by thanksgiving and worship in everything that we do. We know that the battle is no longer against flesh and blood. The battleground isn't in Egypt. It's not in Canaan. The primary battleground is in our hearts. For us to keep short accounts with the Lord Jesus, acknowledging our weaknesses and our sins, and trusting in his amazing and everlasting love for us, watching for him every day and consciously saying, Lord, I want to join my whole heart to your cause, to the cause of Christ. That, that is, that's what I draw from this, this story of Egypt dealing with these two plagues is that God is for us, he is against and will defeat his enemies, and he will never, ever give up. And I will always have this opportunity to turn and face him and receive what he has. As we move into communion, uh, I invite some members of the leadership team to come up and distribute the, the bread and the cup. Is there anybody here who can do that? Thanks, Emily. Thank you, Shauna. As we come to this table, I've already said this this morning, but I'll say it again. We see the epitome of what God was willing to do to deliver us from the sin and bondage that we ourselves chose. God the Father sent God the Son, the Word made flesh, to live among us, to experience what it is like to live on a planet greatly ruled and tested by God's enemy, Satan, who is the deceiver. Even now, even now, the Lord Jesus, seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms, knows exactly what it's like to live on this earth, tempted in ways that we were never tempted and yet never sinning. The sinless one went to the cross on our behalf, died a death that we deserved so that we would not have to die. He died so that we could live. And he died that we might be brought back into full communion with God because his name is Emmanuel and he wants to live with us and he wants us to live with him. And so he did that through the blood of Jesus. So as you come to this table, I encourage you to do it both soberly and joyfully. It's a great, great darkness 
and a great oppression and a great slavery that we've been delivered from by the shed blood of Jesus. And we shouldn't mark it lightly. But it's also a great salvation. It is done, and we should mark it with great joy. As we take, I'll let you go ahead and open these if you haven't already. If you're new to this process, you have to peel the little tiny plastic thing off the top to get the wiper out before you open the cup. As we take this broken bread that represents his body broken for us on the cross, and as we take this cup, which represents his blood poured out for us, we rejoice that the resurrected Christ, Emmanuel, has come to live with us and in us in spirit so that we might worship and serve him in all that he's doing to further extend all of his covenantal promises to the earth. So let's take the bread together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your body broken for us, that we might be your body here on earth. Let's take the cup together. We rejoice, Lord Jesus. We rejoice in the life that comes from your death. And we praise you for your great sacrifice on our behalf. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, our Lord Jesus, and to the Holy Spirit. 